Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. All right. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week for almost five years now, it's hard to believe, we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and today I'm having a repeat guest back on the show. You're probably all familiar with him. He was a featured guest on our recent podcast that we did about comic book censorship and the comics code. This is the one and only, of course, Bob Corn Revere, and he is out with a new book called The Mind of the Censor and The Eye of the Beholder. It's about just what it says it's about, the mind of the censor. Why do people censor and how do they justify it? And he takes a trip through history looking at mostly, mostly American history, I think almost exclusively American history, to look at some of America's greatest all-time censors. We look at Comstock from the 19th and early 20th century. We look at Newton Minow, who worked for the FCC and uh, came up with the phrase, to, what was it, vast wasteland, Bob? Yes. Yeah. And, and it, it was actually interesting to read in your book that Newton Minow, I believe, is still alive, right? Yes. And is still playing on that phrase, vast wasteland. So we, we look at him and then we look at you know the comics code. And then at the end of the book, Bob actually draws parallels and explains some differences from some of these historical sensors, the sensors of early radio, early television, uh, comics, and looks at the new anti-free speech movement and how they differ. But before we get into all that, Bob, first of all, <laughs> I realize I've been going on. Thank you for again for coming on the show. Always happy to be here. I, you've been doing First Amendment work for a very long time, litigated some of the big First Amendment cases. This is your first book, though, right? Why in this long career did you decide to come out with a book now and on this topic? Well, it's my first book that isn't a, quote, law book per se. I've done treatises on communications law. I've done books of of essays on various policy issues. So I guess you would say this is probably about my fourth book, but it's the first one written for a general audience that while it talks about the law of free expression, it's really not designed to be a treatise on the law of free expression. It's more a book of that I think anyone with an interest in these issues would be able to read and hopefully enjoy and come away with an understanding of why censors are so important to how we understand free expression. The, I have to ask, this is an excellent title, did you come up with the title before coming up with the idea for the book or was the idea for the book what inspired the title? You know, it's hard to remember. It's been so long ago since I first thought of this, but I, I think I probably came up with the title and some of the basic ideas for the book around the same time. And part of it came from the fact that I have been doing First Amendment law for almost my entire career. And I started wondering and then noticing what common features you would find among people who advocate censorship. And, um, and so the title just sort of naturally came from thinking about that. You begin the book by taking a look at Anthony Comstock, 
who was the leader of what was it called? The New York Society uh, for the Suppression of Vice. And he looms large in American history. I, I suspect there, there are probably some of our listeners who maybe have heard of the name but aren't familiar with him and his background. So I'll, I want to ask you a little bit about that. I, I, should, I should say I, I play video games periodically, and there's this popular video game series called Bioshock. And they came out with a video game, I think in 2014, which was modeled on Anthony. The world was modeled on one in which essentially Anthony Comstock won his battles and became president, or in this case, dictator, and what that sort of world would look like. It was very theocratic. It was very uh, puritanical. Uh, so that's actually one of my first introductions to Anthony Comstock was through the worlds of video games. But for those of our listeners who haven't played Bioshock or haven't been familiar with Anthony Comstock, who is he and why is he important to the story of free expression in America? Well, it's not a surprise that many people would not have heard of Anthony Comstock. Uh, he was one of the most important men in America at the turn of the century, at least in, on these issues, and had lasting influence that continues to this day in some ways. Uh, but he has become an obscure figure in history. Uh, and it, even many people who are versed in media law and First Amendment law are not that familiar with Anthony Comstock. Now, as you say, he's had something of a resurgence or at least an interest in him uh, has has come back in recent years, um, as you say, in Bioshock, but also in, just in the last three years, there have been a number of books, two of them released this summer, that uh, talk a lot about Anthony Comstock uh, and uh, and all that he did. I My book isn't about Comstock per se. It's not a Comstock biography, mm -hmm. but it starts with actually th three chapters that uh, revolve around Comstock that uh, basically focus on the mindset of the censor. And like no one else in history, and certainly not in American history, Anthony Comstock personified what it is in the censor's mind. I mean, and I think there are really um, a number of identifiable characteristics. One is they believe that it is legitimate. In fact, it is a mission to use the power of the state to either restrict speech they find that is evil uh, or to uh, promote speech or mandate speech that they think is particularly good, okay? The second characteristic is they have absolute certainty that they are, they are correct. Uh, and the third characteristic, which came in later years and not with Comstock, was that they fundamentally know at some level that what they are doing is un-American, which is why censors after Comstock, after he ruined the name of, of censorship, um, censors that came along after Comstock all try to deny that what they are doing is censorship because, of course, censorship is bad. Or to paraphrase Richard Nixon, that would be wrong. Uh, <laughs> so uh, they always, always try and find a way to say what they're doing isn't censorship, either because the speech they want to restrict doesn't deserve First Amendment protection or because the tactics they're using don't rise to the level of censorship. Uh, this isn't censorship. This is just regulation, they might say. And so... Um, or they might say, we're just trying to get voluntary agreement to something. Meanwhile, they're using officers of the state to threaten people with dire consequences if they don't go along. So those are the main consequences. But the rise of Comstock and how he became so influential is such a fascinating story. 
I, I originally was going to just have the first chapter be about Comstock, but there were so many stories and so many ways in which it tied into the theme of the book that I had to break it into three chapters. One, his, his rise in his career, uh, a second chapter on his legacy and uh, what that really meant after he was gone, and a third chapter on his tactics, which have been used by professional censors ever since. I want to actually seize on a point that you made about censors, at least after Comstock, and we can maybe talk about how what Comstock thought of the word censor, have tried to distance themselves from the word censorship. Uh, Newton Minow, for example, was a young chairman of the FCC under JFK. That's you write in your book that uh, he claimed that broadcasters actually, he, he had this vast wasteland speech in which he called the, essentially everything that was being shown on television uh, degrading, you know, indecent. He said he called it a vast wasteland. And he said that it was actually the broadcasters who were the censors because they based their programming decisions on ratings and what the audience wants, um, and because they strive to only wear air non-offensive programming. He said that he said this is censorship in its most pernicious form. So it's he's trying to do an Orwellian uh twisting of phrases to to actually distance himself from censorship and put it on his critics, understanding that the free to, free speech or censorship have some cultural capital. Well right. I mean you know he he basically said that because the networks uh, uh, make their decisions about what to air and they're not putting on the programs that he thinks are sufficiently uplifting, that that is censorship as opposed to having the government nudge broadcasters and try and suggest uh, their programs that they really should be putting on. As a matter of fact, he said that you would get no argument from me if you said that given a choice, people would rather watch a Western than a symphony. Uh, but uh, that the public interest, which was the law, uh, the Communications Act mandate that he was entrusted to enforce, uh, required more that it was it should get broadcasters to air what people should watch rather than what they might prefer to watch. Another example of would be censor claiming distance from censorship would be perhaps Tipper Gore and all of her colleagues in the. Um, what is it? The Parents Music Resource Center. Exactly. And their enterprise in the mid to late eighties to try and get music labels on, you know, what was it? Tapes at the time, CDs, things like that. That's right. Uh, and they claimed all along, this wasn't an effort at censorship, but they put you in, they had held these hearings in Congress, which are famous of course now because you had a, uh, the lead singer from Twisted Sister appear on them, and of course his heavy metal get up. But a lot of these the people who led this had connections to sen- senators. For example, they were either the wives, as in the case of Tipper Gore, or you know. So it it, it had this almost regulation by intimidation feel to it. Well, that's right. the- yeah. A Parents Music Resource Center uh, was created in the mid nineteen eighties. Uh, it was a, a group of prominent Washington wives. Uh, Tipper Gore was sort of the figurehead for them. Susan Baker was another, a, a bipartisan effort. As you and Susan say. Baker was the wife of what was the former chief of oh, James of, Baker. Who James Baker, yeah, and he had a number of, of uh, prominent positions in various administrations. I think they just came out with a book about him, a pretty good one. I think my wife read it, read it. But an interesting man. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and the LA Times estimated that uh, 
let's see, 50% of PMRC's members were married to 10% of the Senate. Mm. <laughs> so the Parent Teachers Association, PTA, had been trying to get hearings on uh, what they saw as salacious rock music for a couple of years and got nowhere. Uh, PMRC was formed and within a couple of months uh, persuaded the Senate Commerce Committee to hold hearings in September 1985. Uh, and as you point out, they had the members of PMRC, uh, the prominent members, testify along with people who supported them. And on the other side, they brought in Frank Zappa, Dee Snyder, as he's the lead singer of Twisted Sister, and John Denver. And uh, so it was uh, sort of your classic kind of political show trial hearing, which I think it would be fair to describe it as a kangaroo court, except that would be terribly unfair to kangaroos. <laughs> uh, it was, I mean, typically these things are put up, put together, the way a hearing is put together is to showcase the good guys and the bad guys. It's very much like professional wrestling in that the participants are, are uh, carefully selected to represent who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Uh, and uh, it's also a theater for intimidation. And in this case, it was both the carrot and the stick. Uh, the carrot was that uh, Congress was considering, and this was mentioned a couple of times during the hearing, a blank tape tax for the music industry. And so the head of the Recording Industry of Associate, uh, Association of America showed up and testified and sort of in the background, he didn't mention it, was this blank tape tax. And if, unless they played ball, they would uh, um, risk not getting favorable legislation. And, and just for our listeners, blank tape tax, the concern there was that people were re-recording previously purchased tapes or discs or cassettes or whatever. And undercutting music sales. And the idea behind the tax was to put a tax for that would be compensation for the music industry on the sale of blank tapes. Yeah. Uh, kind of like an early, an early uh, Napster fight. Exactly. So yeah. And, and the stick was uh, represented by various of the members of the panel talking about how they could rely on FCC action for radio play of music they found to be uh, unacceptable. And, and to help with that, PMRC came up with their list of what they called the Filthy 15, which was essentially intended to be a do not playlist. Now, throughout the hearing, they, of course, said, well, we're only talking about a voluntary record labeling effort. How could that be censorship? It's voluntary. But it's the use of the word voluntary as used in Washington, D.C. and essentially nowhere else. There's an implied or else whenever you say we want you to do this voluntarily. And the or else here was either we don't support your favorable legislation or we can resort to regulatory efforts to force you to do what we what we want. And later on, uh, PMRC supported mandatory record labeling legislation in 19 states. So the threat of censorship and state censorship is always there, even when it's described as voluntary. And that's an example of how censors who want to use state power and advocate the use of state power to restrict ideas or expression they don't like, uh, will claim it, what they're up to is not censorship because this is only voluntary. There did end up being, of course, the labels on CDs, for example. Uh, you see explicit on there if there's explicit content. We have that with us today. If you download a song from from iTunes, it has the E, e next to it. Did that come as a re direct result of these hearings? This, these are voluntary, 
voluntary labels agreed to by the music industry, much in the same way that, right, the Hayes Code was a voluntary system for the movie industry or the Comics Code Authority was a voluntary code for the comic book industry. It's the voluntary nature of these codes come as a direct result of the threat of government censorship or government meddling within the industry. Could, to put it squarely, could these labels have existed without the hearings that happened in Congress, do you think? Well, yeah, sure, they could have. And, and uh, you know, I'm not against, and it's not a First Amendment issue, to have a voluntary system where someone in, an, in the industry wants to alert their purchasers in advance what to expect. Uh, and, and industries do that quite frequently. But the examples that you mentioned, the Hayes Code for the music industry, the Comics Code Authority in the 1950s. The Hayes Code was for the uh, movies, in, uh, movies it industry. Was, right, adopted in the late 20s, early 30s. Uh, and people will constantly talk about pre-code movies and post-code movies. And that all changed when the Motion Picture Association adopted their rating system in the late 60s. But the various examples that you have mentioned, uh, the Hayes Code, the Comics Code, uh, and the music labeling in the 1980s all came at the behest of specific pressure campaigns threatening the use of government action if, quote, voluntary measures weren't adopted. Yeah, the FCC kind of plays a role in some of this, and you talk about the FCC a lot in your book. And the regulation of whether it's broadcast networks or television broadcast networks or radio broadcast networks, do you think it's speaking generally here? And if I recall, you had said you used to work for the FCC. Is that I was chief counsel to the chairman. So, so the work that you do at the FCC in regulating the content of the, this programming seems to strike on its face at core First Amendment or free expression issues and seems to me, at least in this day and age, where you can get so much content. I'm reading your book and it's talking about uh, something that uh, one of the one of the leaders of Grateful Dead said on the radio. I forget exactly what it was, but I'm like, I hear that. It, turn on any podcast and you hear something more explicit than that. Um, it just seems so antiquated in a world in which you don't have three broadcast networks and just a couple of radio stations in your in your community. Well, that's right. And and so many of the regulations of both affirmative mandates and and negative restrictions uh, that have grown up with the radio and then television media uh, really have no place in today's world. And in constitutional terms, those regulations have been confined to those particular media. Uh, and so, and, and what's the reasoning there? Well, the re- I, I explored this in the chapter on uh, the vast wasteland, uh, the origins of radio and, and television regulation, and how it was rooted in the concept of spectrum scarcity, and then explore the notion that that was really a manufactured concept that radio waves, which by the way don't exist, ain't no such thing as a radio wave. Uh, there is the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, magnetic spectrum that can be used to transmit information. But this is like saying that the federal government had nationalized the law of physics. The the scarcity was essentially created as a justification for regulation. Um, As a scarce resource, which was the justification, uh, the electromagnetic spectrum is no more a scarce good than any other economic good. 
Now, the two people can't use it simultaneously. You can't use it, you know, for radio and then a different um, type of service at the same time. But that just means you need a method of allocation for who's going to have priority of use. Uh, it was actually beginning to develop in common law that prior use uh, allowed sort of a homesteading notion to uh, allow you to enforce your rights to use that spectrum. Just like you would with land property, for example. You can't have two owners of the same piece of property. Exactly. You can't have someone farm and build a parking lot on the same piece of land. And so the economic system has come up with a way of allocating who's going to use that resource. It's no different with the electromagnetic spectrum. And so we developed a system of licensing by the federal government, uh, but it, it could as easily and was beginning to develop a system more akin to property ownership, uh, where you would have uh, uh, the prior use be a way of establishing uh, that claim. Um, as it turned out, government stepped in and developed a licensing system. And you mentioned there may be some First Amendment problems here. Well, we'll think about it. We have a First Amendment that is designed in many respects in response to the system of press licensing that existed in Europe and in England in particular uh, in earlier centuries. Um, and so now we have a new medium come along and the government says, we ought to license that. Uh, it is really, uh, there's a real tension between the First Amendment and that very concept. And two different kinds of regulation have grown up under this regime, and I explore them in, in separate chapters. One is sort of the public interest mandate that Newton Minow was a primary spokesman for in his vast wasteland speech. And the other is negative regulations of, you know, the indecency regulations, the, the prohibitions that exist for broadcasting, but not for other media. And I explore the origins of those who the primary proponents are for these various kinds of regulations, and how in the end, they have been failed concepts. Yeah, it just seems to me strange that you go from regulating a medium because it's scarce, right? The electromagnetic spectrum is scarce and you need to allocate property rights, which the free market has found a way to do with most everything else. Um, but I guess the federal government thinks wouldn't work in this in this context to then deciding that, okay, because we're going to help allocate property rights to the, to the spectrum, we then need to determine the content or review the content or set rules for the content that then exist on there. And this seems to me that's something that government does often. Yeah. It's sort of a regulatory mission creep where you say, because we have to allocate who can have a license, now we can regulate to a certain degree uh, what it is they can do with that license. And there's a real irony in how the, the law developed in this area, where it, it developed based on this notion of scarcity. And then one of the first things that the Federal Radio Commission did uh, when it was first created in 1927 was to limit the number of stations. And so stations that belong to universities, to unions, to various other diverse voices were the first ones to go. They were sacrificed in that first round of about 200 stations that were taken off hmm. the air. Um, and the way the regulations developed was that, uh, as opposed to promoting diversity, the concept was that radio stations had to be like department stores rather than specialty stores. They had to have a little something for everybody. And so you ended up having more of a blandness, um, mandated by virtue of that regulation. 
Now, I'll say this too about these different chapters in the book, one on public interest regulation and another on the indecency panic. And that is, in most examples that I, I cite in the book, censorship is what most people think of as censorship. That's sort of a, a prohibition on speech that someone or some institution wants to limit. Now, the public interest chapter is, is a little different in that it is more focused on the, quote, affirmative mandates of the public interest standard, those things that you should be airing. And many people find that less threatening because it's sort of a eat your vegetables, we know what's good for you uh, kind of censorship. But I explore a number of ways in which it's had really negative effects uh, on the broadcast medium over the years. Um, the decade of the vast wasteland speech in the 1960s was described by many as the blandest era for television in American history. Um, we see now, and as you pointed out, we have so many different outlets for and, and so many different media for receiving and transmitting information that it seems so anachronistic. Um, but now you look at this explosion of uh, video that's available, video entertainment on streaming services, uh, a proliferation, none of which are licensed or controlled by the federal government. And we have a, a diversity like we have never seen. And many argue, as a golden age, new golden age for television, quality like we've never seen. So the expectation of some that government regulation is necessary to or would improve uh, what we have available to us really hasn't been borne out by history. Yeah, I mean, the golden age of television was sparked, many contend, uh, by the creation of The Wire and The Sopranos, right, on on channels that were outside of the broadcast networks, featuring content that you probably couldn't have shown on the broadcasting network. Certainly featuring content you would never have been able to show on television. Yeah, and and as a result, you, you see more of these morality plays, these human drama that draw so much of us into these stories uh, and has really elevated the medium. And I think it's interesting because you have this theory of the public interest, but it seems to be so divorced from what the public is interested in. It's like, it, well, you know, right. you, so you worked on the Janet Jackson Nipplegate case involving her and Justin Timberlake at, uh, during the halftime performance. Many of our listeners and viewers will probably recall this at the, um, end of their performance, Justin Timberlake sings the lyrics, you know, I'll have you naked by the end of this song and then pulls off, um, a flap of some sort on, on Janet Jackson's wardrobe and it exposes uh, a nipple for what was it like nine sixteenths of a second. Correct. Um, and you write in your book, uh, it was the most TiVo'd moment in television history up to that point And the most searched event online, according to Google. That's right. CBS got fined for this. That's how you got involved as, as a lawyer for, Davis Wright Tremaine as a partner for Davis Wright Tremaine. Uh, but it just seems like, it, it, first of all, most people didn't know what they were seeing. And to the ex extent they did or they didn't, you know, they, they sought it out. It's not like they wanted to put the blindfolds or the blinders over their eyes. That's right. I mean, for most people, it was a blink and you miss it kind of moment. Um, and so people in living rooms around the country said, what was that? Uh, and in real time, it was a sort of a long shot of the stage at the end of the performance uh, that, again, it was hard to tell what was going on. The reason why it drew the FCC's attention is because the Drudge Report 
the very next morning showed a close-up high-def photo of the <laughs> performers uh, standing next to each other and uh, reported falsely that this was something CBS had planned and approved. And so uh, that's when the FCC uh, burst into action and sent a, a notice of inquiry to the network um, within 24 hours. I mean, faster than it took for Congress to declare war uh, after Pearl Harbor in World War II. Con- uh, the FCC was on it, and they, they sent this detailed and lengthy notice of inquiry to the network. And then, uh, as you say, I was, I was engaged to help uh, um, investigate uh, what had happened and then um, defend the, the network before the FCC. Are there a deluge of complaints from the general public when they see, for example, something like the Janet Jackson episode or when they hear, for example, George Carlin's Seven Dirty Words on uh, the Pacifica radio station? It seems to me that they don't. It seems like there are the, these purity crusaders like Anthony Comstock who seek these sorts of things out. And you actually talk about one organization and its name is escaping me at this moment. Parents Television Council. Yeah, that would watch all television out there and log anything um, that fits some of these subjective criteria. I don't remember them exactly. And then urge people to complain about them. If I'm remembering the George Carlin thing right, the the I believe it was a father who complained, hadn't actually seen or heard uh, the routine, but was nevertheless offended by it. Well, it's hard to say whether or not uh, the, the complainant or the George Carlin monologue actually heard it. Uh, the complaint came six weeks after the broadcast. Uh, it was a broadcast on WBAI in New York, a station that was hard enough to tune in that you almost had to have a safe crackers touch to turn the dial to get to it. Um, but six weeks after the broadcast, there was a single complaint filed by someone, as it turned out, was the head of morality and media uh, on the board of morality and media. And, uh, uh, file the complaint. As you say, these advocacy organizations exist in many cases for the very purpose of censoring speech they don't like, which is the Comstock model. Comstock was a vigilante that ultimately later was empowered uh, as a special agent of the post office to enforce the law against sending obscene materials or any, as the law wrote and read at the time, any immoral materials through the mail. Um, and so in the tradition of Comstock being vigilantes, you have these groups uh, being formed. That was the origin of the, uh, the complaint in New York um, against the uh, Carlin monologue. And it was the origin of the complaints against the, uh, the Super Bowl um, incident in uh, 2004. Um, as you say, uh, it, it takes these kinds of organized complaint campaigns to whip up support. They exist for the very purpose of doing so. And so Parents Television Council, it had been around for a few years, but hadn't really made much headway. And there was a growing interest by uh, some um, in Washington and in, in Congress for put some pressure on the FCC to enforce its indecency rules more. And right when they were looking at that issue and had had a hearing on that three days later, the Super Bowl incident happened. And so it took an issue that had some political momentum already and kicked it into hyperdrive. Now, did a lot of people complain about the Super Bowl incident? I mean, uh, the uh, FCC uh, claimed that there was a record number of complaints. As it turns out, Parents Television Council had created an automated 
um, online complaint system that would automatically forward complaints to the FCC. And then they lobbied the FCC to change the way they counted the complaints. So for example, uh, their automated system would allow you to send a complaint whether or not you'd seen the show. And then it would use its outreach to encourage all kinds of people to complain. And it like like a um, multi-headed missile, those complaints would then fragment and be sent to multiple offices within the FCC. They would be sent to all five of the commissioners. They would be sent to the Enforcement Bureau. They would be sent to the Media Bureau. And so each of those complaints, because of the way the FCC began to count them after they were lobbied, um, each of those counted as a separate complaint. So not only were the complaints sort of an astroturf to begin with, they were essentially created at the behest of this organization, but then they were counted five and six times once they got to the commission. Uh, after the uh, Super Bowl incident, and this is according to information released by the FCC under the Freedom of Information Act, 99.6% of all of the complaints that the FCC received came from these organized complaint campaigns. So it made it look like there was a groundswell of public support when, at least in the case of the Super Bowl, most people said, you know, what was that? And a, an, a, an Associated Press poll taken after the FCC investigation began found that 80% of the public thought that the investigation was a waste of taxpayer dollars. Yet, again, this is the way these things are lobbied. And it's one of the reasons why in the book, I focus on the censors. You know, what motivates them and what tactics do they use to promote their various agendas? You write in the book that purity crusaders claim to hate the stuff they want to suppress and argue that it will ruin all who are exposed but invariably, they can't get enough of it. They search it out, collect it, study it, categorize it, archive it, as in the case <laughs> that you discussed, archive it, talk about it, and display it to others, all for the ostensible purpose of making such expression cease to exist. This reminds me of a story relayed by the late Christopher Hitchens in which he talks about Samuel Johnson, who was the great lexicographer, put together the first dictionary, and he's a Londoner, or he's part of England, lived in England, excuse me. And after he put together the dictionary, he was visited by the most respectable women of his community. And they come to him and they say, Mr. Johnson, we commend you for this uh, magisterial work. And we also commend you for not including any indecent words in your dictionary. <laughs> Samuel Johnson retorts, well, I commend you for knowing where to look for them, <laughs> which, which kind of tells you everything you need to know about in certain cases, the mind of the censor. There, there's something about the human psyche that wants to see these things, um, that is drawn to controversy. Uh, um, and and they, they'll see, search them out. And there's probably no better example in your book of the case of the Kingsman's rendition of Louie Louie. So can you talk a little bit about that one? Because that's probably, I had not heard this story before. And this one blew me away. The amount of time the FBI spent investigating that song uh, and parsing the words is just incredible. It's one of my favorite stories in the book, and it appears as sort of a flashback sequence in the uh, the chapter on music censorship. Because again, I, I focus that, as you pointed out earlier, on the uh, 1985 rock music hearings, uh, where every 12 minutes or so in this four-hour hearing, someone would say, this isn't about censorship. And the other thing that they would claim is, we're targeting this music because it is unlike any phenomenon we have ever seen before. Rock music was never like this and no one reacted to it, which is 
exactly the opposite of what is true. Uh, rock music was always considered to be a threat because it excited the children and the parents didn't, uh, uh, didn't know what to make of it. And so they in- inherently saw it as a threat. And so one of the examples in a flashback I go to is the panic over the song Louie Louie by the Kingsmen in 1963. And what people don't realize is that for about two and a half years in the mid-1960s, the FBI conducted an intensive investigation of whether or not the song Louie Louie contained obscene lyrics. Uh, Now, I had known about this and, in fact, had gotten a copy of the Freedom of Information Act file uh, on the the Louie Louie investigation that I just had sort of laying around and had read it before. And it was only when I was writing the chapter on music censorship that it came back to mind. And I thought, well, there, that, that's interesting. That'll fit in. And so I had intended to write about two or three paragraphs, maybe, on, on the Louis Louis controversy. But as I started writing it, there was just so much there. And <laughs> it was so, to me at least, interesting that it just kept going. And so it, in the book, it goes on for about eight or 10 pages talking about this investigation. And what's fascinating about it is that for this long period of, you know, went on for years, the FBI, through six different field offices, poured over these lyrics. They had agents listening to it at different speeds. They listened to it backwards. They, you know, turned over every rock and couldn't figure out whether or not the song Louie Louie uh, contained um, filthy lyrics. Because if you hear it, the Kingsmen, they kind of slur their words. It's not clear what they're saying. Well, well, they do. And there's a reason for that. And, and the reason is the song was recorded in one take in a little broom closet of a, a, um, a recording studio. And there was a single microphone that was hung from the ceiling. And the lead singer had to stand on his tippy toes to try and sing up into the, uh, the microphone. And to make matters worse, he had just gotten braces that week. And so he was kind of slurring his words. And so... You don't know really what it's about. And it was about a year and a half into the investigation when some rocket scientist at the FBI decided, you know, maybe we should check the lyrics at the copyright office because the lyrics would be on file. So they did and uh, looked at the lyrics, found nothing um, salacious at all. It was a homesick sailor's lament about getting home to his his girl. Uh, And so you would think that the the investigation would end there. But no, uh, it uh, it went on for at least another year until finally they, they closed it out, uh, uh, saying that they really couldn't find, they couldn't really make out anything intelligible. Now, there, there are a couple of other really interesting features about this. First, the personalities involved. I mean, one of the first uh, complaints was sent to Robert Kennedy when he was attorney general. Uh, claiming that something had to be done about this this terrible song. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover got involved in the investigation and corresponded with uh, some very upset uh, parents groups who want, had to do something about it. The governor of Indiana uh, had issued a statewide ban on, on the playing of the song. So uh, there was all this going on in the background until finally they, they decided that there was nothing there. But the other irony is this. The word fuck does appear in Louie Louie as not, not as part of the lyrics, but about a minute into the song, the drummer 
during the recording, dropped a stick and uttered the word fuck uh, is really indistinct and it's in the background. But if you listen for it at about 57 seconds in, um, uh, you can hear it. Uh, but no one who was investigating the song um, caught that because they were listening for the lyrics. Uh, and those who were convinced that the lyrics were obscene were sure that they heard something in those garbled lyrics that, that was obscene, but never noted the, the actual word that was there. So it's, it's really, uh, you know, a fascinating study of human nature where, you know, if you're, you know what you're looking for, you're pretty sure to find it. But if you aren't, then <laughs> you won't see it. Yeah. And you, you write this, that censors or would-be censors often bend over backwards to try and find indecency or salaciousness uh, where it may or may not exist. And oftentimes you can conjure up some sort of strained argument to uh, find indecency or salaciousness in places, but you really need to bend over backwards or get on your tippy toes to look over your neighbor's fence to find it. But and in, as in the previous, some of the other examples you cite in your book, you know, looking at the mind of the censor, one of the censors in this controversy, Indiana Governor Matthew Welsh, came to regret his efforts while in office to try and get the, the song off the radio. And he said, you know, later in the 1991 interview, this is what, 30, almost 30 years after the controversy, he says, this wasn't censorship, uh, you write. Welsh insisted as he had merely suggested to Chapman, I believe one of the broadcasters, that, quote, it might be simpler all around if the song wasn't played. But it doesn't take a First Amendment scholar to see the contradiction, Marx concluded, for if a record isn't played at the suggestion of the state's chief executive, it has been banned. I mean, again, it's the example of where censors often come to regret their role in, in these controversies once they are shown in the from the perspective of history just how silly they were. Just as Alan Tipper Gore came to regret uh, their participation in the 1985 hearings, particularly when... Al was considering running for president and had to go out to Hollywood to do fundraising. Uh, some people weren't as convinced that he was just sort of drawn into it by happenstance. And uh, uh, so they had a lot of explaining to do. Yeah. And I should say, I think my contextualization of Governor Matthew Welsh's uh, explanation there was off. It sounds like he did later recognize that it was censorship, but at the time he tried to contend it wasn't. Well, I don't think he ever really recognized it was censorship, but, to, you know, those who looked at the country, he, he just tried to play it down and say that it, it was much ado about nothing. Um, but uh, uh, again, at the time, he said that Louis Louis was so obscene, it made his ears tingle. And so he called the head of the um, Indiana Broadcasters Association and said, maybe better off if nobody plays it. <laughs> yeah, but what it does, but now everyone plays it, right? And this is so much a feature of some of the works that get censored or attempt to be censored. You write, in the end, Defenders of Louie Louie got the last laugh. April 11th is listed on the National Special Events Registry as International Louie Louie Day, and states of Washington and Oregon have proclaimed their own observances of Louie Louie Day. The city of Seattle has done the same in Tacoma, Washington sponsored its annual Louis Fest from 2003 to 2012. And then the rest of the paragraph goes on to talk about all these other municipalities that celebrate the song Louis Louis. And, and you actually, in, in the context of Comstock, quote H.L. Mencken uh, saying that the old imbecile, referencing Comstock, did more than any other man to ruin Puritanism in the United States and that he, quote, liberated American letters from the blight of Puritanism. 
Mencken summed up Comstock's accomplishments as at best laughable and at worst revolting. After Comstock, it became increasingly difficult and is now virtually impossible for an American organization to overtly claim censorship as its avowed purpose. Which is what the, the, the censor's dilemma is about, right? I mean, there's no, there's no lessening of an interest in censorship, but there's an increasing inability for these advocacy groups to actually embrace the mantle of censorship. They have to say that they are doing something else. And as the example of Louis Louis points out, usually their actions are counterproductive in that they tend to make the material they want to censor more popular and more available. And it's been true ever since Comstock and probably was true before him. But there's something that I describe in the chapter on Comstock's legacy and that I call the Comstock effect. It's sort of a Victorian era version of the Streisand effect, where if you're complaining about something, you only make people curious and want to see it. And so I give a number of examples of that. For example, the Paul Shabas masterpiece, September Morn, which was a, um, a painting from the early uh, uh, 20th century that had been in the Paris Salon and, and uh, had gotten some notoriety, but that uh, Comstock uh, got press in trying to take it out of store windows. And so between that controversy and others, uh, the, the painting became wildly popular. Uh, he tried to censor um, George, Bernard Shaw, uh, George Bernard Shaw's play, uh, Mrs. Warren's Profession, and had sent a note to the theater owner in New York saying that uh, um, they should not show it. And so the theater owner, recognizing that there would be good publicity, sent a note back inviting publicly Comstock to come to a rehearsal so that he could see the play. And so the back and forth uh, in the press made the play so popular that the police had to call out the reserves on opening night to manage the crowds. Uh, and so you often have this kind of effect. The record labeling uh, controversy in the 1980s, the explicit lyrics label has been used by artists to promote their work. Uh, Two Live Crew, when it performed at the uh, VH1 Music Awards in, I think, 2001 or two, had the label as the backdrop on the stage. Uh, and now it's, it's considered to be kind of a joke. Uh, the efforts to censor comics uh, ultimately failed, even though they had a devastating effect on the industry at the time. Uh, now, I mean, it's, it's hard to get a movie made in Hollywood if it doesn't have a cape. Uh, and... Uh, you know, so <laughs> and you have George Carlin, for example, putting it on the cover of his records. You know, exactly. here's the brief. You know, two live crew performing at the uh, VH1 Hip Hop Honors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so you frequently find this to be the case, uh, where uh, the efforts to censor uh, not only are ridiculed and become the source of everyone else's amusement, uh, they are counterproductive. Uh, in that uh, they make the works more popular. And I also discuss the legal effects in that the organized efforts to censor, and particularly beginning with Comstock, ultimately led to a pushback and a creation of First Amendment theories that ultimately were embraced by the court and led to a protective environment for speech that would have horrified Comstock and couldn't have been envisioned by him. Yeah, a couple episodes ago, we explored the life of Morris Ernst for who and you have in the book saying that nobody did more to sell sex in America than Anthony Comstock. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was, as one uh, writer described him, uh, the best press agent for sex it ever had. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the 20th century here. We um, 
talk about how censorship doesn't have cultural capital, about how a lot of what we're discussing involves content that is progressive. You know, the idea of television and radio and cinema and heavy metal music. I mean, it's progressive in the sense that these are new media that kind of play that are uh, welcomed and brought forward by America's youth. Youth, It's almost tr- transgressive. You, you get kind of a youth rebellion feel from the internet, from heavy metal music, from video games, jazz music, for example, comic books. I mean, all of us were teenagers at one point. We rebelled against the power, uh, <laughs> or, or, power or the authority figures, in many cases, our parents. Um, and then, you know, once these then teenagers become adults, we look back on the efforts to censor these new media as being antiquated and silly and look at we all survived and the, the sky didn't fall. But today, um, this, the calls for censorship are shifting and almost being embraced by uh, a younger generation. You write in your book, contrary to the thesis of this book, current trends in academia suggest that there is no longer any reticence about censorship, particularly among those who embrace the notion that the First Amendment does indeed go too far. Such unapologetic endorsements of the need to suppress disagreeable expressions seem to contradict the premise that censors in a free society are embattled and defensive. Are these the exceptions that prove the rule? Uh, We can look at the Netflix controversy surrounding Dave Chappelle, right? Um, I think it's fair to say that a lot of those protesting uh, Netflix and seeking to get a piece of art, comedy, uh, and if you watch the special, it is art. Uh, It's awesome. Yeah. Um, are younger, you know, you also have the, uh, transgender rights activists protesting, but I think there's more support of it by the younger audience rather than the older audience that can maybe recall Richard Pryor and, uh, George Carlin, for example. And you talk at the end of the book about how these younger or modern censors differ from the older ones that were involved in the examples we've discussed. So if you could talk a little bit about that and how they differ. Well, I, I think the point is they don't really differ. Uh, and, you know, I don't see them as exceptions that prove rules. First, exceptions don't prove rules. They test them. And I think what we're seeing among today's advocates of restricting speech of, of various kinds uh, is the vehemence and anger of their reaction to that speech is just a new manifestation of the censor's dilemma. And it's not so much that they are about uh, censorship. They'll embrace that. But th- what they will say is, that's not free speech. And they will try and denigrate the very concept of free expression in justification of what they're doing. So they embrace the idea of restricting what it is that offends them. But they will just either say, it's not speech, or they'll try and characterize it as violence or as something else. Use some sort of metaphor to transform what they're doing into an act of restricting speech uh, and into uh, something that uh, serves their their particular purpose. And one of the reasons that I focus on the things that I did in the book, it seems like I'm focused mainly on um, censorship of entertainment uh, or cultural issues, but I wanted to explore how censorship developed in the years before we started seeing it as a legal issue in protecting anti-war demonstrators in World War I. And so is that for many people in the United States, they see First Amendment law as something 
that began in the 20th century and began around World War I. But in fact, these battles over censorship go back and a primary focus on the era of Comstock because he, certainly he wanted to restrict what he saw as obscenity. But that was a very broadly based concept. He used that to prosecute doctors who provided too much medical information, anything in, involving abortion or contraception. He prosecuted free thinkers. It was a broadly based notion of cultural censorship. And so it was only in pushing back against that that we saw the law of free speech develop uh, in the 20th century. Uh, and um, you know what we're seeing today is really a, another manifestation of that kind of Comstockian mindset, but simply focused on different issues because those different issues are the ones that upset modern censors. And so they're really no different from Comstock. They've just chosen a different subject on which to focus their ire. You mentioned that uh, you focus on entertainment in this book, and, and I'm happy you do because so often our discussion of free expression delves into political expression, which is, of course, important. But so much of what makes life interesting and worth living lives in the world of entertainment, jazz music, video games, the internet, music uh, in general, movies, the radio. I mean, that's what people really love. And it, it, it's a shame now and throughout history that people seek to censor or get rid of it, or in this case, just uh, eliminate a comedy special that, and I, this is worth noting, 96% of the American public enjoys if you look at Rotten Tomatoes. So Rotten Tomatoes has this thing where it gives you the ratings from critics and the ratings from the general public. Last time I checked, the ratings for The Closer, which is Dave Chappelle's most recent comedy special, were something like 30% from critics. It was 96% approval from the audience, which, which just it tells you all you need to know. And I think speaks to the idea that a lot of these censors are of a minority opinion within uh, the country as a whole, but they're very vocal in, in their disdain and efforts to censor the expression. Uh, and the rest of us, especially if they're willing to throw around um, phrases like racist or sexist or uh, transphobic, uh, just say, whoa, 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 okay, this conversation isn't worth participating in, so I'm just going to watch the closer uh, in the privacy of my own home and stay out of this debate. Yeah, no, I, and I, I take your point about the different rating systems on Rotten Tomatoes and, and elsewhere too, uh, and that it, I really like the idea that they have divided it between the critics' score and the audience score because I, I always have to look at both in figuring out what I think they you know, the rating might mean. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes a high critic score and a low audience score uh, is a, an endorsement of, of a work. And sometimes it works the other way, as in the case of Dave Chappelle's uh, The Closer, uh, which, by the way, is absolutely brilliant uh, as, as a piece of art um, for those people who are, are complaining about it and using words like transphobic to describe it. Uh, I think they haven't really listened to it. Uh, and, and by the way, one of the things I do talk about in the book is using terms denoting mental illness uh, to describe uh, phenomena that you simply uh, disagree with. Homophobic, transphobic, the idea that someone who is thinking wrongly is somehow uh, mentally ill 
as the hallmark of authoritarian and, and totalitarian governments. It's what China has done routinely with dissidents and, uh, and still does. And the Soviet Union had a terrible history of confining to psychiatric institutes uh, uh, political dissidents. And so, you know, I wish there were better words uh, than transphobic or homophobic to describe people who don't like homosexuals or have a problem with, with transsexuals. Uh, I think the use of phobia uh, is, is really unfortunate and really does tap into the, the authoritarian mindset. Yeah. At the end of your book, you have a chapter or a subchapter called Knowing Them When You See Them, and it lists out 10 different criteria for what a censor might be or how they act. And number 10 is you might be a censor if you equate speech you oppose with mental illness. So, you know, and unfortunately we're seeing a lot of these trends and you speak to it, uh, manifest themselves in academia. And just in the last week, we've seen a number of ridiculous, um, examples of would be censors, or in some cases, actual censors bending over backwards to find justification for censorship or offense. For example, we have a case at Coastal Carolina University involving a professor who taught a theater class. And prior to his class arriving, uh, a previous professor had met with a bunch of uh, students of color and they were hoping to find other students that they could of color that they could meet with. And so they had written those students' names on a whiteboard. And when this professor and his students had arrived, uh, the students saw those names and thought someone was singling out students of color on campus. And um, as a result, this professor has been you know, vilified, thinking that he was the one singling them out uh, for malicious reasons. But no, it was it was not malicious at all. It was actually trying to find, they just forgot to find friends and they just forgot to wipe it down. And, and when he was approached by it, he said, sorry, but I don't think it's a big deal. It, I'm just sad people get their feelings hurt so easily. And, and then he asks rhetorically, and they are going into theater, question mark? Uh, and then you have uh, Bright Chang over at the University of Michigan, who is a MacArthur genius, a world-renowned pianist, survived Mao's communist rev revolution, uh, and had his piano taken from his family when he was young because Mao thought having pianos in the home was, a, was bourgeois. He survived that, but then he came to University of Michigan, and uh, in the last couple of weeks, or maybe it was the last couple of months, he showed... Laurence Olivier's famous 1965 version of Othello where Laurence Olivier wears skin darkening makeup to play the more and his students got offended. He was kicked out of his classes and thankfully we got involved and um, he, he was, the formal investigation was dropped, but it, it just seems like people are looking. And then Dorian Abbott at Massachusetts Institute of Technology was set to give a speech about, um, the climate on other planets and whether it'd be hospitable to humans. And he was disinvited because he also has a position that isn't conformist on diversity, equity, and inclusion programming and affirmative action on campus. So it just seems like there are certain tab, there are two taboos today, maybe not the same taboos as yesteryear. Um, and the censors are exercising in similar ways. Well, yeah, and that's one of the things that I try and point out in the book. Different issues, same tactics, and same mindset. I mean, that is the mind of the censor. And that's how I contrast uh, what I describe as uh, the um, culture of free expression or the spirit of liberty 
as opposed to uh, the mindset of the censor. And it, again, it is, is, it is governed by knowing what it is you want to censor, being absolutely certain that you are right, not just for yourself, but for everybody else. Uh, and that you contrast that with a spirit, which I think the First Amendment was based on, and that is a notion that even for those things that you disagree with and strongly disagree with, that uh, it is better for everybody to allow those things to be said and to allow people to make their own evaluation of whether or not they agree with it. So I think we'll leave it there as my printer starts cleaning itself <laughs> over here on my desk. The book, when, when does the book come out? Uh, November 4th. Okay. So that's next week. Yes. Yes. So go out and buy it, right? Yeah. It would make a lovely Christmas gift. <laughs> I really enjoyed the book. I learned a lot. In, in particular, that Louis Louis story just fascinates me. And the book is worth the, worth the price just for those 10 pages alone. You know, I, I wrote it not to be a law book. And yet, uh, for those who are interested in following the law, it should have a lot there that, that people can, can take from it. Uh, it is not just a book of First Amendment stories, but it you know, can be. It's really meant to be uh, read and appreciated or enjoyed by anyone who has any interest in these issues at all. Yeah. And just a reminder to our listeners, that book is called The Mind of the Censor and The Eye of the Beholder. It's available on November 4th, so pick it up wherever books are sold. I found often that with Amazon, if you order a book early, you pre-order it, it usually arrives before the release date. So uh, yep. go out and get it. And Bob, Thanks again for coming on the show. I, I think you might be our most frequent guest. Uh, <laughs> and so I appreciate you always lending your your time to us. Well, Nico, it's always a pleasure. And uh, maybe next time we'll be able to do it in person. Yes, yes, hopefully so. So, Well, that was Bob Corn Revere. Again, he is the author of The Mind of the Censor and The Eye of the Beholder. And he is a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine. If you enjoyed this show, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Reviews are the single best thing that you all can do uh, to get more listeners on the show. This show is, again, produced and hosted by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter if you want to learn more about the show. And if you have feedback for us, you can reach us at, so to speak, at thefire.org. Again, that is, so to speak, at thefire.org. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.